Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. It's easy to say that Jared Bernstein was an advisor on economics and on politics to Vice President Biden. But far more importantly, he is one of the liberal economists, progressive economists in Washington that every conservative reads and studies. He's been doing it for decades, Economic Policy Institute, and now at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Jared, we are thrilled you're with us today. What is the Biden mandate forward? What does Vice President Biden need to do to speak not to those committed to him, but the marginal voters looking for the Biden message? What does he need to say? Well, first of all, it's always great to start the day with the three of you. It's just fascinating to hear uh, just sitting here in the green room listening to your uh, to your rap. Uh, the, uh, the vice president is running for office at a, in the midst of of really three crises, a COVID crisis, a health crisis, that is, an economic one, which, of course, stems from the health crisis, and now just an outpouring of racial violence, which, as I think I heard, at least implicit in some of your comments, feels very justified for uh, for a lot of people. And uh, yeah, this is the time, as you, you just played some tape of him saying, to bring the nation together and to restore a competent federal sector, something we so sorely lack, that can meet the kind of shocks that come out of global economy fast and furiously, whether it's a pandemic or whether it's uh, massive inequality or whether it's the kind of environmental degradation we said. We need a competent, amply funded federal sector that has the capacity to protect the American people and give them the opportunity they need to just realize their potential out there in the economy. And I think, broadly speaking, that's yeah. the agenda. Jared, as former chief economist to former Vice President Joe Biden, what is his solution? Is it a universal income? What does it mean to have a strong federal response, given the fact that we have seen a strong federal response, enhanced unemployment benefits, a huge program to get checks out to Americans below a certain income level? What more would Biden Look, do? Well, first of all, let me just say the countercyclical response, which is what you're talking about there, is you know very key to what we're going through right now. But that's not a plan for the future. That's a cyclical response. Uh, what I, I think the next uh, president uh, is going to need to do is to resolve structural problems within the economy. So one of the problems, there, there's no one solution because there's so many different types of problems. Obviously, people need access to affordable health care, and uh, Biden has articulated a path towards universal coverage that's very important probably at the top of the list now is going to be jobs. I mean, that wasn't necessarily at the top of the list when the unemployment rate was around 3%, but when it's 20%, we certainly have to talk about jobs. And there you have a very deep investment agenda, whether it's on the uh, infrastructure side, whether it's on green technology and green jobs, or whether it's uh, uh, in the caring professions, uh, critically important, health care, child care, really establishing higher quality jobs for folks in the services. Jared, he had a long time in Washington to try and engineer those structural changes, eight years in the Obama administration as well. And I ask this diplomatically speaking, I don't want to get too political sure. here, but there will be some people who say he had his chance. What do you say back to that? Uh, you have to recognize, I mean, we do have to get political here. You have to recognize that uh, before Barack Obama was sworn in, there was literally a cabal of Republicans who were meeting to try to 
block every aspect of his agenda. Now, he still managed, with the help of the vice president at the time, uh, to push back hard on the Great Recession, to establish uh, a, a very important health care change that brought our uninsurance rates down by 40 percent, uh, and, uh, and, and a financial reform that I think has proved pretty durable. And that's with tremendous political blowback. Then, of course, when the Tea Party got to town, they tried to shut it down even further. So he's going to need political cooperation, and that's one reason I'm sure the Democrats are very interested in trying to get a majority in the Senate. But even amidst the uh, kind of opposition that uh, he and Obama faced, you know, they actually got quite a bit done. <clears throat> Jared, always great to catch up with you. You, of course, are allowed to get political. I just try and avoid it wherever I can. Jared, fantastic <laughs> to hear from you. I don't you, like sir. it thank either, you. but you can't Jared avoid it. There. Jared, thank you. We've had wonderful conversations today with economist uh, Stephen King of HSBC joining us, the laureate Paul Romer on technology, he at New York University, and now the former president of the New York Federal Reserve System, William Dudley, and of course with a distinguished career at Goldman Sachs uh, before that in his service with Tim Geithner of uh, a, a bit ago, a crisis ago, I guess we could say. Dr. Dudley, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. John and I were talking about inequality and one of the wraps of any Fed is that it is monetary policy for the elite. Explain trickle-down Federal Reserve policy. How do they assist in a lesser inequality? Well, the Fed's monetary policy tools are really about supporting economic activity and driving the economy to higher levels of, of employment. However, that can actually cause financial asset values to go up uh, and that can actually exacerbate inequality. So the Fed's choices, not have a recovery, uh, have less inequality, or have a recovery with buoyant financial asset prices and more inequality. So the Fed's tools are just not suited to address the inequality problem. Bill, is it that binary, or can we find a better balance? I think it is pr pr pretty much that binary. Uh, obviously, you know, when we're in a crisis like this and the Fed's uh, embarked on special facilities, uh, you know, the Fed could try to, you know, undertake facilities that funneled money more to households and small businesses. But again, the Fed is, uh, that's difficult for the Fed operationally. How does the Fed actually get money to millions and millions of households and small businesses? That's difficult to do operationally. It's much easier to intervene in the capital markets uh, where the Fed can rely on, uh, you know, counterparties, primary dealers and others to essentially help the Fed buy financial assets. Much more difficult to lend on a one by one millions uh, into millions of different uh, entities. So that again, that's a challenging thing for the Fed. Bill, I think it is a challenging thing, but there is a broad consensus that they should be keeping financial conditions loose to help this economy pick up and recover. You'll hear very little debate about that. I think where the debate really is about how far the Federal Reserve goes when it does that. You can intervene in credit markets. Okay, might be a debate there as well, but you can help say big companies issue debt to keep people on the payroll. But when you start to go into junk, you do run the risk of running the, getting the accusation that you are helping those who made risky bets in this market. And the likelihood that that actually spills over to the broader economy is relatively small. Bill, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, how do you know when you've done too much? Well, I think the Fed's focus has been on basically making sure that financial markets work well so people can actually access and have access to the markets. And that's really the reason for the interventions. I mean, even their intervention in, in, into the high yield debt market, it's not so much to 
bail out individual borrowers, but to make sure that people actually can access that market and raise high yield debt. And I think they've been uh, quite successful in those efforts. But you, you, know, you raise an important point. You know, people who have high yield debt outstanding, a lot of that, a lot of times that's happened by choice. And so for the Federal Reserve to intervene and support those asset prices are, is basically creating a little bit of moral hazard in the sense that you're encouraging people to take on more debt. So let's talk about the moral hazard and broaden out the implications of this period of time. There have been some analysts who say the reason why the Federal Reserve really, I don't want to say had to, but in some ways had to step into the corporate debt market was because of the expansion of the shadow banking system. In some ways, they were bailing out the shadow banking sector rather than the banking sector, which was actually well capitalized. How important in your view is it to set regulatory standards for the shadow banking sector that are sort of more similar to what we see on Wall Street following this, given the fact that perhaps this can be viewed as they're having the systemic import of Wall Street of the past? I think you raise a very important point. If something is systemic, that's then going to require the central bank to intervene in an unusual way in the middle of a crisis. If it's systemic, then it needs to be regulated to some degree. And so we had a number of players in, in this uh, last few months uh, that have essentially been bailed out by the Fed, people who hedge funds that were invested in cash treasuries and short uh, treasury futures. The Fed, basically, their, their treasury purchases were helping those entities unwind that, what turned out to be a bad trade. If people become very leveraged and they're, they're big enough to be systemic, then I think there needs to be some regulation to reel that in. What kind of regulation could the Fed push and frankly push for from other government agencies that you think would be appropriate from the hedge funds, from private equity, from some of the investment firms that have benefited from the Fed's programs and will probably continue to based on what they have pledged going forward? Well, one thing the Fed could do is, is basically say, look, we're, you know, you're lending to these hedge funds, you're doing repo with these hedge funds, there's got to be a limit on how much uh, leverage you, you you give them. So that'd be one. Another thing would be money uh, mutual funds. We have mutual funds that have overnight liquidity that are invested in very illiquid assets. Uh, you know, the, the SEC could change that and say, if you're a mutual fund invested in really liquid assets, you can't offer overnight liquidity. You have to offer monthly liquidity. And that would also reduce the risk of a fire sale of assets. What the Fed really wants to avoid in these kind of episodes is where people have to dump lots of assets into the market and there's no buyers, and that then distorts markets uh, significantly. What the Fed, what, one way to avoid that is to make sure that the people actually have access to liquidity. Another thing the Fed could do is uh, basically say, look, you have to buy liquidity insurance from the Fed during peacetime, so it's available during wartime. So there's a number of things that I think are worth exploring because you know we've you know it's one thing if you have a financial crisis every 50 100 years but if you start to have a financial crisis every 10 years uh, then the Fed's actions are going to encourage people to take more risk in the future. Long ago and far away Bill Dudley you and the great Ed McKelvey wrote a chapter for me on our fiscal position and you said off of Patrick O'Brien that there was not a moment to lose. When is our moment not to lose with $9 trillion of presumed balance sheet? When is that moment out in the distant future? Well, what's changed, obviously, is that uh, the level of interest rates has come down dramatically. So the, although we've had this explosion yes. in federal debt, debt service costs have stayed uh, very, very, very subdued. I mean, I think we've had more than a tripling of debt outstanding over the last uh, 10 years or so. Yet uh, the debt service costs have barely moved upward. 
So I think you know what what happens to interest rates are going to be critical in terms of when the federal debt debt burden becomes uh, important. It's not going to be a problem in the next year or two, but looking out f- further down the road, I think there will be some consequences to having such a large increase in federal debt. Bill, what are your thoughts on how much we're monetizing the Treasury deficit at the moment? Well, we're not monetizing it in the sense that the Fed isn't actually buying, you know, the primary issuance of Treasuries, but that we are monetizing it in the sense that the Fed's intervening in the secondary market and expanding its balance sheet uh, quite sharply. I mean, the Fed's balance sheet now is up to $7 trillion. Uh, it's gone up by more than $3 trillion just in the last three months. So the balance sheet is rising very, very rapidly. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, there's no limit to how big the Fed balance sheet can get, but you have to understand that there are some risks there for the Fed. I mean, the Fed is basically becoming, uh, taking on quite a bit of interest rate risk, right? Because most of its liabilities are reserves, which are overnight, and a lot of its assets are longer duration assets. So the Fed actually has an interest rate risk exposure that doesn't get talked about very much. Bill Dudley, we'll have to get you back to talk about it once more. Bill Dudley there, the former New York Fed president, on a situation in the Treasury market and on the inequality coming around from the Federal Reserve's. Right now, Stephen Chiveron joins us. He is with Federated uh, Hermes, and we're thrilled he could be with us because he's one of the few people I know in the allocation game that really talks the talk straight. Steve, how do I feel if I rebalanced out of Amazon, if I rebalanced out of Alphabet? Yeah, I think you feel pretty pretty lousy, and, and, and you know some of our thoughts on rebalancing that we've discussed over the years. Look, I think right now, you know, we've lived through an unprecedented period roughly of 10 years where economic growth was low but widespread and it allowed inflation and rates to stay down. And so the gulf between winners and losers was relatively narrow. You could own everything and be okay. That's not the world we're in right now. Right now, the difference between winners and losers are companies doubling or dying. And in that environment, you really need to do your work and be active in the way that you invest. You need to invest professionally, and it's a case where when you see a winner, you hold your winner. Um, and I think it's a little bit of a different game now than it was pre-crisis. Steve, that certainly has been true up until now. We see the big fang names absolutely dominating the returns that we have seen so far. But there's been a shift recently toward the cyclicals. Yesterday, we saw an outperformance in financials, the Russell 2000. The underperformance came from the NASDAQ. How much steam do you think that this trade has? You know, it's a debate that we have internally. I, I think it has some steam. And I think what's going on is in a very messy way, we're observing the wisdom of crowds, and you see it when you see folks shoulder-to-shoulder on the beach in Ocean City, Maryland, or rushing into bars in Wisconsin, or even, and I know that there's a whole lot more than this to it, but even when you see the large groups gathering for protests, what we're finding, what we're doing is we're pushing the limits of how hard we can reopen in ways that experts would never approve of, but it's giving us information as to how aggressive we can reopen, and the truth is, is that if as the economy reopens, it's reopening at 60% capacity instead of 30, for an example, that's a whole lot fewer companies that die, and that's a whole lot more people that are currently unemployed that get back to work. And so what I think the market is trying to understand is, is how long is this social distance purgatory? How severe is it? The period after we open, but before we get back to 
full capacity. And because we're pushing it so hard, and it is messy, um, I think we're starting to get the impression, or the market's starting to sniff out, that the reopening could be more aggressive than we originally thought. I think that's what's primarily driving the market, and cyclicals benefit from that because they're going to be where you price in that better economic activity. You know, Steve, we talk a lot on this program about the disconnect between the brutal unemployment data and economic figures that we've been getting out, frankly, from the world and markets that have seemed somewhat divorced from reality. But it really isn't markets as a whole. It has been the FANG names, the big tech shares that have benefited the most from this environment. It has not been the cyclicals, which have actually lagged behind and posted losses. Are we pricing in a V-shaped recovery given the rotation into cyclicals yet? Or are we still pricing in a V, a swoosh, a square root sign, whatever you want to say? I don't think it matters. Um, I mean, I think it is a U-shaped recovery. It's going to take us, in, in our estimation, until the end of 2021, until GDP levels get back to where they were at the end of 19, as an example. But if you look back at the history of markets, markets bottom in recessions. They don't bottom after. They don't bottom when things get better. They bottom when data goes from deteriorating at its fastest rate to a slightly less fast rate. And if this recession really is the first two quarters of this year, well, then guess what? We're only a month away from its end. And so I think what you have to remember is a market is a series of individuals trying to get ahead of each other. Because if you get the winning trade on first, you make money when everyone else comes to that realization. And what happened here is when unemployment yeah. claims stopped rising at that high a rate, the market bottomed. That, that's actually typical. It's frustrating because it's illogical, but it's typical of how markets react in recession. Hey, Steve, always great to catch up with you, mate. Fantastic to hear from you. Steve Chevron there, a Federated Hermes Portfolio Manager. My best to you and the whole of the team. A little bit later, of course, Tom, hopefully we hear from the President of the United States. To go back to the fiscal debate, Senator Pat Toomey speaking to Fox Business this morning, saying that perhaps another relief bill won't be needed if we can reopen this economy. And this speaks to something that I know Mohammed Alarian is concerned about as well, that we win the war but don't secure the peace. And I just wonder if that's something we hear a little bit more about in the months to come. Yeah, I, I, that's a, I'm really glad you brought that up, John. That really shows just some of the, the disparities that we see in Washington. The backdrop for all of this, folks, is an extraordinary market. We talked to the technician, Chris Verone, earlier about the one-way move on small caps, the one-way move on equities. Someone of great extinction, Tobias Lefkovich of Citigroup, has been watching carefully and he joins us now. Tobias, can you be a buyer of stocks on this beautiful Wednesday morning? It's a little bit more troublesome at these levels, and markets have come back pretty sharply on, on legitimate reasons, including um, tremendous stimulus both from the Federal Reserve as well as from the Feds or from the government uh, through the CARES Act particularly. Uh, but we've also seen the reopening of the economy. We're starting. We've seen uh, better news on the healthcare front in terms of less hospitalizations, less deaths, more, or more better treatments, hopes on vaccines. All that is fine. And what I call FOMU has kind of played in, which is institutional investors' fear of missing, or not out, but rather fear of meaningfully underperforming. So as markets go up, they have to participate, and everybody focuses on the technicals as opposed to some of the fundamentals, for example, um, how is the unemployment issues going to uh, play out over the next six, nine months. And it is going to be a more difficult economic period. Tobias, you touched on something really important. We see a price move, and there's always a, ten- a, a, a temptation to find this neat fundamental narrative that fits it. 
Are you saying this is just very technical? It's a position squeeze. It's momentum. It's the fear of missing out. The fear of missing of, of underperforming, as you've put it, as well. So, I, look, I think, again, there are some true fundamental backdrops to it. I think probably the best argument I have heard from investors is that companies are making structural change. They're learning how to work through um, the pandemic-induced virtual reality that we're kind of enduring. Um, over two and a half months, companies have really thought, sought out the efficiencies, and they're reacting to it. So there are going to be some structural changes that therefore provide better margin opportunity for the companies on the outside. But the, the, the problem is that those structural efficiencies also mean those jobs don't come back as quickly and creates kind of a demand problem. Um, look, we, we think the 40 million numbers are too high uh, in terms of the reported claims simply because there's a number of duplication people who had signed up weren't sure if they were if, if they had signed up per, you know, correctly, submitted another claim. And you're seeing you know, certain states coming out and telling you they're duplicates. So maybe let's say the number is 30 million, 32 million. And let's even say half of those people get back their jobs by year end. That's still another 16 million people who don't have their jobs. Um, and it's going to be problematic in terms of top-line activity for corporations. There are certain industries that are enduring this extraordinarily well, and there are certain ones that are far more damaged because what's really happened is the pandemic has accelerated certain trends that were kind of already underway. So the demise of brick-and-mortar retail has you know, increased rapidly. The, uh, you know, the trend towards telemedicine has also increased the other way very you know, significantly. So those are some of the things that are changing secularly. But again, I think companies have really learned how to work through this. And it is a, pro it is a proper argument. The question is, is the market moved too much? Um, and our sense from our panic euphoria model, which is now flashing euphoria again, is suggesting almost an 80% probability that markets will be down in the subsequent 12 months as opposed to up. Tobias, look forward to getting you back on the program soon. Tobias Lefkovich there of City. Joining us now, the president of the World Bank, David Melpass, of course, definitive at Bear Stearns for years in economics and assisting President Trump on his economics at Treasury, and now spearheading the effort at the World Bank. We spoke to him recently. We get an update from David Malpass today. David, there is a clarion call worldwide to spend money to put people to work. How will the World Bank affect that policy? Hi, Tom. Good morning. Uh, the World Bank is adding resources where it can uh, and also targeting the resources to where the most impact can be can be felt. Uh, for some countries, that means supporting core uh, core businesses, either in the public sector or the private sector, ones that if they stopped operation, it would be it would be giantly harmful. But in many countries, uh, the, the focus is also on getting cash to people, either through a social safety net or through uh, uh, through income kind transfers. Uh, we're dealing with countries that are often on the brink of extreme poverty for tens of millions of people. So that's the focus right now, quickly moving on both the health crisis and the alleviation of, right. of poverty, setting up systems that will work into the future. One of the interesting things that's happening is the differentiation of countries. What financial markets are doing is in effect looking at some and saying they're going to be able to move forward with the policies that they've got or that they'll be able to put in place. And so that becomes a powerful positive force.
Right. What is the constraints you have? I mean, our Eric Martin uh, writes encyclopedic on the World Bank, and he's looking at your credit rating and some of the financial ratios of the World Bank. But I want to know, David Malpass, what's the day-to-day constraint to deploying money to those very poor countries? Uh, yes. Well, um, we're, we're in a, a better position uh, because of a recent capital increase in both IBRD and IFC, two of the big parts of the bank, and a large replenishment of the uh, of IDA that was done in December. Uh, and so, by 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 chance, by coincidence, by good fortune, uh, the bank has uh, resources. And so, the constraint uh, where, where we are. Uh, planning to deploy $160 billion uh, over the next 15 months. That sounds small by by what's going on in developed countries. But if you think about the developing countries, these are large scale resources, very welcome by the countries. And so the, the constraint, the challenge is to uh, to not go over exposure limits for individual countries. Some countries are at their at their credit limits. Let's think of it that way. But the bigger issue is what's in their program. They want to create confidence. And so what we're trying to do is have programs that show the world, show their own people uh, that there's confidence in the recovery on the other side. One of the most important things that we can do in that is transparency. We need transparency both on the health side, meaning what is the situation for COVID, uh, also on the debt side. What are the contracts that yeah. the governments are entering into? And that proves to be a, a major challenge that pe- people all around the world are working on in order to make more transparency on the, on the debt that's out there. President Malpas, let's talk about that because you understand how delicate this moment is for many of these economies and countries that you work with. What we need right now is grants and not loans. And what we need for a whole range of countries is debt relief. Can you talk to us about the scale of debt relief that you can help engineer in the coming months, the coming year? Yes. And with regard to grants, your point is exactly right. And uh, so as the World Bank looks at it, uh, of of this $160 billion, a big chunk, uh, nearly a third, uh, is, is is grants, meaning not loans, but actually, and, and no interest on it, no repayment. Uh, and so that becomes a very strong, positive net flow for the countries. We're also trying to have, uh, or the, the, the G20 countries have agreed to a moratorium on repayments to their creditors. Um, what The biggest of that is China, uh, and it agreed to, and recently, uh, w- within the last week, President Xi confirmed that China will fully participate in the moratorium. So in, in combination, that provides a big new chunk of available fiscal space for the countries to, we're talking about the 75 poorest countries in the world. It creates space for them to spend on health, the health emergency itself. So that's important. And what we need now is the commercial creditors uh, to also come in. That means the, the asset managers, the banks, uh, we're, we're dealing with the poorest countries in the world. And I, I think they need, they need to find a way that they can also accept a moratorium on the repayment stream so that there's more resources available for the countries. 
Everybody's working together. It's uh, it's a sizable amount of money, but there's still quite a few steps to take uh, with regard to especially China and the commercial creditors to have them fully participate. Also, the Gulf states, I should mention that the, the Persian yeah. Gulf states have quite a bit of debt outstanding in the poorest countries, and there needs to be participation, full participation by them also in the debt moratorium. President Malpass, you have a unique position having visibility around the world. And I want to talk about China's presence as probably the dominant lender to developing nations over the past five years. I believe the estimates say that about $500 billion of loans uh, that China has extended to some of these countries. Do you have any sense of what that nation's debt forgiveness plan might look like and how that will pressure some of these nations? It's very important to the recovery of the of the poorest countries and and others um, that our President Xi uh, included those remarks uh, and it was very welcome in a speech that he gave. I guess it was two weeks ago uh, where he said China would fully participate. And you know, China is a member of the G20 countries which uh, endorsed this moratorium. So now we're at the point of implementation for. China's official creditor agencies. That's the China Development Bank, China Exim Bank. These are official agencies of the Chinese government, and they need to fully participate in the moratorium. And then the next level will be the commercial creditors. That's the banks in China, for example, that have that have lent a lot. And it's not just China. It's they're, they're one of many of the lenders uh, that uh, that are able to participate and. And that gives them, I think there's going to be a two-way benefit. The poorest countries themselves are helped immensely uh, by this. But then the the, uh, the lender countries will be creating a better environment for the future. And so I think, I'm hoping people will look to the longer run and see that if they participate now, there'll be, there'll be a better environment in the future for, for their markets, for their exports and things and so on. David, thank you for the hard work. It's been a while, and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Hopefully we can continue this conversation. The president of the World Bank there, David Malpass. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.